I'm just now looking at you, this 85-year-old woman, picturing guys just blowing each other in the back of the post office while you just want your book of love stamps. All I want is the American flag stamps. Could you get your mouth off of his penis? I just want my stamps. Welcome to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. The voice you just heard there is one Liz Winstead. Liz Winstead is a comedian. Liz Winstead co-created uh, co The Daily Show. She was the head writer on the show. She also runs an organization called Lady Parts Justice, which uses comedy and comedic videos to fight for people to be able to use their uteruses... Is it uteruses or uteri? Whatever, you get the idea. However they see fit. Um, And she's got lots of awesome stories, and she's super smart and funny, and she's a really good friend of mine, and I'm excited to have her on the show, so let's get to it. So Liz, I don't know this about you. When you were a kid, Uh what did you want to be? When I was a kid, I just wanted to have someone allow me to complete a sentence. (laughs) I was the youngest of five kids in a... Catholic family and domineering parents five really opinionated kids I being one of them but also youngest by six years so nobody cared what I had to say and so I I don't know I I really didn't know what I wanted to be but what I knew was that like when I would dabble in kid things that I thought would be interesting like I wanted to be an altar boy because I thought that seemed really cool uh, you know, I, I went what, to... Gr- what about an altar boy? I've heard you tell that story before. What about an altar boy seemed cool to you? Because to me, that doesn't look that fun. First of all, it wasn't babysitting. Let's just be clear. So it was about making money. It was like, it was about making money. Also, I had it into my head that that was the gateway to becoming a priest. And I looked at priests as people who got to speak uninterrupted. Because I really didn't know what a stand-up comedian was. But I knew that the priest would get up there and blab on and on and on and everyone listened and then everybody told the priest how awesome he was afterwards and I was like, that? I didn't get what he said. In fact, I was sort of bored, but everyone loves that guy. So maybe if I become an altar boy, that's the gateway to be that guy. Plus, the dudes that were in like sixth and seventh grade would make like $15 like at weddings and funerals. And I was like, that's a lot of money and way more than I was making babysitting. And then when I went to go ask the priest, and he was like, no, it's called Altar Boy. And I was like, that's the reason? That's a lame reason. And I was like, not trying to be confrontational, but I was just like, can you just call me an altar girl? Like, is that hard? And then, you know. They do said, they have altar girls now? Yes. They do now. Yeah. But they sent me off to write letters to the drunk archbishop, who the archbishop, I don't know if you remember this, or I don't, maybe you weren't in Minnesota at the time, but the archbishop at the time was a big drunk and was drove during Lent into the wall of a 7-Eleven, plowed right into it, bombed. And it was like, oh, I guess that guy didn't give up drinking for Lent. <laughs> um, and so everybody kind of knew he was a big drunk. So it was like, oh, just write a letter to him. He'll never write her back. And then everybody thought I would let just it go. go away. And I kind of probably did. But then I wanted to be a paper boy. And my mom said that was too dangerous. And everything had the word boy in it that I wanted to be, it turns out. And so it, I got very annoyed by uh, no for no good reason. You know, like if I was like, I want to be a bodybuilder and lift and lift anvils and carry them up mountains at age seven, we'll be like, well, you can't because you're not a grown up. But like the gender thing was weird to me. And so I don't know, I guess I just wanted to be heard. I thought I would be a history teacher. I really love history mm-hmm. and I studied history in college. And then somebody dared me to do stand up. 
Yeah, tell that story. Well, to talk about your very first stand-up set. Well, so when somebody suggested that I do stand-up, I was always kind of the class cynic. And so when someone suggested I do stand-up, um, I, I didn't see anyone who looked like me doing it, right? The women I saw doing it were like Phyllis Diller and This Joan was like Rivers. late 80s? Early 80s. Early 80s, okay. Yeah, early 80s. And so from the time someone suggested it, which was around... 1982 or one two till the time that I actually did it was about a year because I I was like this punk rock kid and kind of a you know wise ass and I just was like well I don't see anybody talking about their experiences that are like mine at all and then I kind of saw George Carlin a couple of times on the Tonight Show and he had like the closest life experience to mine he talked about Catholicism and he talked about censorship and he talked about religion and all this stuff and um, so I kind of liked what he was doing. So I thought, well, maybe I can do that and tailor it to my life. And so I got up the courage to go to an open mic in Minneapolis. Where? At Dudley Riggs mm. in Seven Corners, which is a, sort of the university area. And it's one of those things. And I think a lot of comics have the same story where you try it and your adrenaline gets you through. And I don't even think my jokes were funny. I had a couple of jokes like... I think male Great Dane should have to wear underwear in public. That was one of my first jokes. Super good. <laughs> well, they actually should. <laughs> yes, I know. And that um, if you and one of my other first jokes was um, if you see if you play Monopoly with bald guys, notice they always pick the hat. Mm. <laughs> Not particularly funny. Uh, but you get through it, right? So then you get enough laughs to try it again. So you weren't telling stories about your life at this. Point no, I was literally no. just like you have five minutes, or maybe even three minutes. And you just like tell jokes, and so then I told the jokes, and I was got some laughs, and so I thought I'll try it again, and then I bombed my second time. So then I well, no, 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 talk about that. So when, when you bombed, do you what? What do you remember about what was going through your head when you were bombing, and how do you define like how did you know you were bombing? Like nobody was laughing at you. Nobody was laughing, and I think that I was like, oh, this is easy. I got laughs last time, and but I was so not connected to it why I was up there or what I was doing that I just assumed that it was easy and then when I got up there again I had a cockiness and I don't know if I delivered the jokes and I think I forgot some stuff and then I was like oh my god when will this be over and um, it was awful so that was just terrible so then I was like 50-50 so then I had to try it again thinking oh I'll either bomb or do great and then I'll know and then I did right in between like mediocre so I was like I have to do it again so then I did it a fourth time, and I think it was, like, kind of good. And then cut to, I don't know, 30 years later, and I'm still deciding if I should keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you evolve into doing, like, how did you get political in your comedy? What, how did that happen? Well, that was, I mean, my act evolved a little bit into me talking about gender roles and sort of how magazines portrayed women and what women's roles were in society and things like that. And... And I was um, I I was doing my act and and I re- like I, I noticed a couple of things like I would do my show and then at, at one point when I was doing material that was fairly innocuous it all of a sudden stopped working it and stopped I, working yeah for some weird reason it stopped working jokes that were just observational humor dating humor pop, you know pop culture humor and then I started recording myself to see what was I doing wrong was I like dropping a 
specific part of a joke that was integral and not understanding it because I was so comfortable with the material. And then I turned out that when I listened back, I had subtly switched from saying, have you ever noticed to I think? Mm. And when I started saying I think in the affirmative, even if it was, you know, I think, and then it was some stupid, boring thing, uh, it was off-putting to the audience. And that was very interesting. Mm. And I had to make a decision about whether or not I was going to be assertive or if I was going to make the audience feel comfortable with me just pondering and not really being assertive. And as I was wondering about what I should do and how I should feel about that, uh, I, I had a funny incident that was sort of an aha moment where I was, I was always a political person. I read the news and I stayed on top of things, but somebody set me up on a blind date in New York with a dude they thought I would like. I can't remember the guy's name. And he called me and he was like, so, you know, do you want to go to a movie or something? And I was like, all right. And La Dolce Vita was playing at uh, the film forum. It was, it's an old single, single screen art house, right? And they mm. were playing La Dolce Vita. So I said, do you want to go to that? And then he goes, um, isn't that in black and white? And I'm like, I'm not sure that's a detriment, but yeah. it is. So... Uh, I decided to go through that anyway because I'm from Minnesota and I said I'd go so I'm going because that's what you do when you have a commitment (laughs) and so I meet him in front of the movie and the guy's wearing a Yankees hat and the Yankees satin jacket and you know I have a theory about dudes that wear one or more piece of athletic team thing and that is that they will not go down on you if you believe this might be a (laughs) truism so he we we well he's like he's kind of dummy and we walk into the movie theater and he just couldn't care less and I get popcorn because I figure it's gonna be my dinner and I'm broke and he'll pay for it so I got my greasy popcorn and he keeps falling asleep during the movie and he's sliding like in his satin jacket he's like sliding down on my arm and I'm like I hate you you've fallen asleep you have this Yankees regalia on so I like. In my rage, I took my greasy popcorn hand and I purposely like woke him up. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I wrecked your coat. And then like, I wasn't sorry at all, but then I felt guilty for not being sorry. So then I was like, do you want to go for a drink after the movie? Like an asshole, just prolonging this horrible night. And so we go to this bar that he suggested and the tea is a sports bar, but it was the night of the very first Gulf War. And Mm -hmm. Everybody was around the TV, and it was the first... People will forget, that first night of the Gulf War is when people watched a war unfold in their living rooms for the first time. Uninterrupted, a live war. And I remember seeing I remember seeing the TV with the night vision. Yes, like the, with green. the green. And that, and that hot guy named Arthur Kent, mm. and they had Ashley Banfield, and like they replaced all of these staid news anchors with really, like... Um, hot people. Barbie dolls and, and it Ken felt, dolls. Yeah. And yeah. It, all of a sudden there was a there was a detachment to the bombardment and I remember just thinking, are they reporting a war or trying to sell me a war? And 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 like a couple seconds after I said that to myself, the guy I was with was like, This is pretty awesome. And I was like, Oh my God, they sold you on a war and mm. I I was like 
from that point on, I was just flooded with like, how can they do this? Like, they're going to send people to war. People are going to die. They are just sort of reporting what what they want us to know rather than what's true. And from that moment on, I was like, I really think I need to talk about this in my act. And so I started reading more and I started talking a lot about the war and a lot about being sold a bill of goods and how the media was just bullshit. And um, from so, so I just, I literally kind of flipped the switch and it didn't, people weren't that psyched mm-hmm. <laughs> actually to be hearing about it because I think it was, it was just a little bit ahead of when people were ingesting media the way they did. CNN was the only cable news channel. And so it was dom- It was like that was it. And so people were not quite on board with me being so crazy about the way the media fixated on shit. And then I met Brian Unger, who was a correspondent at CBS News, and um, started dating him. And, you know, he was like, it's, I got my journalism degree, and they're sending me to the Jeffrey Dahmer trial and to all this crap, and I can't... and in the OJ shit and mm-hmm. and it just all became very crazy and after the Gulf War happened people forget that like I wondered what was going to happen when they had ratcheted up the emotion of America what are they going to do when this war is quote unquote over like how are they going to take that and and literally when we had sort of figured out or started winding down from the invasion of Kuwait, the Rodney King thing happened. Mm. And it went right into that. And instead of it being an outrage about what it means, what are the race relations in our country, it just became, there's a videotape and there's like um, massive craziness. And then OJ happened and the Menendez, and it was just like an unending stream of cable news became the trial of the century of the week. And... And then it be, you know, and then all the nighttime shows were magazine shows that were just scaring people, like your mattress, which you don't know might kill you. And so <laughs> we just had this information society that was keeping people scared and either focusing on celebrity culture or purient human behavior, and we weren't learning anything. And then after 9/11 happened, um, we just became a mouthpiece for the government, and that's when you know it just we be, had this big bloviating all these cable channels and all this shit and it became less stupid and more manipulative which is still stupid but just in different like form it wasn't so pop culture focused and trial focused and murder focused isn't that how the daily show was born yeah it was really that i had done that a couple of one woman shows just about Mm -hmm. the state of our um our government and our media and what was happening and i made all this fun of all of it and then um i did a special it was funny I did a special on HBO during the Aspen Comedy Festival and they did a political special I think Bill Maher was the host Um, but I remember one of the jokes I did and this was in 1992 was like Bill Clinton's the first Republican I ever voted for and I (laughs) stand by that statement but um, it was so I was doing a lot of political material and then what happened was I moved into an apartment building with Madeline Smithberg on the same day Mm-hmm. And she was producing the John Stewart syndicated show. He had a, a, a late night um, general entertainment talk show that started at MTV and then was syndicated. 
and um, I got she was like do you want to come and produce on this while you're work trying to work on this larger one-woman show and I was like sure because the working on a larger one-woman show about politics it's not really paying my bills <laughs> so I did didn't know how to type did not Brian would come at night and show me how to work this Mac classic so I could like type in the format and the template I still don't really know how to type um, and I produce segments guest segments and stuff like that and um, when, what are your What are your favorite memories of that time in your life? Uh, my favorite memories of my time at that life was it was really fun to learn about uh, how to make TV, and it was also really fun to um, interview George Clooney. Hmm. I got to interview George Clooney, talk to him. And yeah, and him. he asked her on a date, and she thought he was kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So I missed, uh, missed opportunity. Hashtag missed opportunity. Hashtag. I was like, I'm going out to the beach to meet my boyfriend. Who, you know, ten years later was like, I'm gay. So that's <laughs> <laughs> like the story of my life. Um, so I have a question about that later. But anyway, go yeah. on. <laughs> um, so I think it was it was also a fun time to be in New York because I lived in Chelsea when it wasn't Chelsea 26th and 8th, and it was like this kind of wild west and. It was, I met just a lot of really fun people who were trying to do interesting, courageous things. And, you know, I got to bring the polka band from Nyes onto the John Stewart show. I flew them out from Minnesota. Nyes is now closing the greatest mm-hmm. bar in the a United States from of America. Next week. That's right. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think it was cool to just learn about how to, how to interview people and really learn how to pull stories out of people and mm-hmm. get the best you could. And John was a really good interviewer, and so he, if he liked you, he gave you a lot of leeway. You know, if he trusted mm-hmm. you to have his back, you could have a lot of leeway with him. And so it was, it was really fun to walk in and be like, oh my God, here's a story that is really great. And one thing I think that I'm pretty good at is asking questions of people that elicit stories that aren't about their cat or the thing that they've said on 800 different talk shows what are your tricks about that what like what would you what advice would you give me about interviewing people what are the tricks that you use to um i guess i would say i would do a ton of research and then i would i mean first of all you got to do research you can't just kind of read one article and Mm -hmm. get in but if you i i think i like to ask people what when they're afraid how do they act out? Hmm. And then they will usually remember a story that's really fun um, of, about that. Um, I often ask people, um, what is the most fun you've ever had with the, being totally broke? Hmm. You can get a lot of information out of people like that. And then I will say, give me your best roommate story. Give me your worst roommate story. Hmm. Um, and then I, I'll ask people things like, what when you recover from a heartbreak what do you do because people have really funny stories about that um and then they also keep talking you know Mm. they they remember things that they that aren't in the script and they're often given their talking points and sometimes you as the interviewer are said you have to ask these questions but it was lucky on that show we didn't ever have any of that and so it was really fun to like i remember interviewing chris farley and 
and we were just talking about like the worst names of improv troops ever and like he was being really funny and then I you know I, he, I, he said you know I like to drink and I said I, I understand that you like to drink tell me um, <laughs> tell me one of the times that you fell on your head and then he was like oh my god and then he went into this whole story about diving off a bar and then getting up and doing it again and like trying to feel it and then he just started talking about how he kept jumping off that bar because he realized that he was burying his shit so deep with booze that diving off that bar and falling out of the ground was a way that he could actually feel pain so he could feel alive and it was like whoa dude that's intense Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can get things out of people. Um, also, if they give you enough time, you can kind of get stuff out of them, too. But um, And it's also important to f- watch. If you're going to interview somebody, watch the last couple of things they did. And just make sure you don't go there. Because they will launch right back into a uh, sort of scripted thing that might be funny and interesting and... You know. So I'm going to go back to one of your old jokes. Um, visitors to the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport, if you are smart enough to go into Ike's and have the best Bloody Mary ever, you might see a sign that says, I think, therefore, I'm single. Yes. Liz Winston, <laughs> which I think is an old joke. It is. I studied philosophy in college. <laughs> Does I it think. still, like, where, do, I want to know, A, where that joke came from, and B, if you still believe that to be the case. Well, it's funny. It just came from kind of being a pun, like you know, I, I of like, of of I think therefore I am, and then I was like, I think therefore I am single, and I think you know, <laughs> on some level, it's I think therefore I'm single, and then um, like if you where you put the comma, it changes, right? So it's I think therefore I'm single, um, or so it's like oh I've thought about it and I'm going to remain single, or because I think nobody wants to go out with me because I'm going to find them out. Right. Mm. So there's two different meanings to it. I think both of them um, are, in my particular case, kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, you stayed single. I stayed single. Yeah. Only because, you know, it's funny. Once, I never wanted kids. So once you decide you might not want kids, the way you choose a partner is really different. Mm. And so it's, you're not searching for somebody to inseminate you and raise a kid together you make different choices about what you need. And sometimes you can get some of those relationship intimacy things from just people in your life who are friends. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out what you want out of a sexual partner, what emotional things you need from that person. And sometimes that changes. And I'm glad I live in a time where that feels like it's okay. Like I have a lot of childless by choice friends and a lot of friends who are single. And I, it's so great. Like I like in, and it's like, I didn't choose you because you were. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I like, I, you know, my I, friend I, Sue, I think my friend Maggie, thing. like my best yeah. friends, Joe, like all these cool people I know, don't have kids and aren't particularly interested in having them and aren't gonna some aren't gonna have them. And we all found each other, but yeah. like when we still could have had kids, we found each other and just. Yeah, I don't. I've, I think about that too. I'm like, how did this happen? Like, most of my friends, most of my good friends, are maybe partnered, maybe not, but none of us have or want children. Yeah. And how did that happen? How I did we know. all find each other? Maybe it's because of the the way we were living our lives and the circles we were running in and stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were all very driven creatively. The one thing that we all have in common, if you run the list of of friends that we know, mm-hmm. um, people whose work is 
is integral to their being. Mm. So we work 12 hours a day and we really like it. It's not Mm. like I'm working to avoid my life. It's like my life is my work and it's a really rewarding thing and I don't expect it from other people. Other people have compartmentalized life choices and and that's what people do. Mm. And so I think that's a big thing. You know, if you look back on you and I worked on that crazy uh, off-Broadway show together Mm. where, you know, it launched a lot of really nice careers which is fun. Um, but we were working endlessly. Like we worked all the time on that crazy little show and it was really fun and it was really rewarding, but everybody really at that moment really loved doing that thing. I want you to talk about your parents a little bit. Um, were your parents supportive of your choice to be an artist? My parents weirdly were, you know, as a kid, again, I never sought permission from my parents or look to them for approval. I, I, and the reason I never did was I looked at their life choices that they made and they loved their lives and they were really happy, but none of it was anything I would choose for myself. And so, and especially with my mom, like my mom couldn't figure out, she loved being a mom. Like she was really great at it. She loved going to all the plays. She loved living vicariously through her kids. She loved ironing the curtains. She loved all that shit, right? And she couldn't figure out why it was that she got so much joy from that that I would not just try to find a dude and like get the joy that she got from being an observer. And she could not connect with the fact that I was not an observer, I was a participant. And so for me to try to explain that to her would just be too hard. And so I just thought, she's never going to get what I do, but if she sees me being happy with what I do and and like feeling really rewarded, that they'll get it. And I think they did to a certain extent. You know, she would sometimes just, she was also a backhanded, sort of a bitchy person who would say things like, you know, you should breed something other than contempt. <laughs> oh, okay. That was actually very funny. No, I know. <laughs> It's really funny when it's not your mom. Um, but so they really got it. And it was like if people like I remember one time I had this gig in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, my God. And somebody was supposed to go with me and then bailed at the last minute. And so my dad like drove with me to Montgomery, Alabama. And we went and I did my gig and he just thought it was so great. And, you know, he was very proud and would brag and. Um, I would see. Did he brag to you, or did Never. you, you found well, out? No. You, you heard it like secondhand. I would hear right? about it secondhand. Um, he he bragged to me a little more than my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but like I would go to like like the Seven Eleven by their house, and they'd be like, "Oh, you know," or they would say things like, "Oh, you're the one who created the Johnny Carson show," like whatever <laughs> lie or thing that they interpreted that I did. I was like. No, I didn't, or, you know, but, or I would just go, uh-huh, like, because it was nuts. Um, and so... Yeah, that's think, the impression I have, is that your parents were probably, like, busting at the gut with pride over you, yeah. but didn't tell you that. No, it was also weird, too, because my parents are re- were really conservative, mm. and so we had, hor- like, terrible fights, but I think my dad would pick fights with me because... He loved to argue with people who could actually have an argument. Like, I think he would have hated this crop of Republicans because they're stupid. Mm -hmm. But I think he used to poke at me because he liked to, he saw himself in me, Mm -hmm. right, in the argument. And then he could, like, have a sprawling thing. In fact, the way that my dad and I got along 
was we would watch Jeopardy together. And so he could never say I was stupid because I would like run the board on Jeopardy. And so we had this thing where it was like our detente is you may disagree with me, but you can't say I don't know my history because I just ran the board on this fucking thing, <laughs> dude. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So is is it is Gene the only Republican out of the siblings? Or? He's like I he I think he's now an independent. Mm. Um, but you know, he's like an atheist and Ah, oh, okay. And you know, he's like super for marriage equality and he's really pro choice and you know, he's like those Republicans that you know, we used to know. He's like Michael Bloomberg. Back in the day. Sort of. Yeah. Is he like a fiscal republic? Yeah. Actually, uh, back up. Liz's brother My brother's is the, the mayor, mayor of the Mall of America. <laughs> the mayor of Bloomington, Minnesota. Yes. Uh, so he is a fiscal conservative, um, and he has low tolerance for, like, bullshit, you know. And so, yeah. And then all of my sisters are pretty ragey lefties. Yeah. yeah. All four of us. Yeah. Yeah. He's also the shortest, my brother. That's interesting. I yeah. don't know that. Yes. Um, so you're, so Liz has told her abortion story like 4,000 times. So if you haven't heard it, you can just Google Liz Winstead abortion and you'll hear it. But quickly, yeah, but everyone knows my abortion. <laughs> Everybody knows about an abortion. Um, but did, um, but I, what I don't remember is did your mom go to her grave and not know or did no. she know? She knew. Yeah, she, she knew. knew. No. What was that like? So she knew because I... Uh, had my abortion at 13 weeks and after 12 weeks you have to have some kind of um special dilation Mm. and that costs more money and i didn't have the extra money so they billed me to my parents house and now my mom got the bill and so she gathered everyone in my family you know together and she was like i got home and it was like what is this? And I was like, I don't know, I had an emotion. It was horrible. So then like, ugh, it was like a nightmare. So You were 16? I was 16. Yeah. Or 17. 16 so, or 17. I always switch that. It's either 16 or 17. I think I was... But you were young. Yeah, I was in high school. It was the first time. I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex. Um, and so, so I wrote about it in my book. And she said, I don't want you to write about it in your book. And I was like, oh my God, this is like not good that's a defining moment in your life it's part of what you do now for work how could you not write about it in your book well and I think you know and I had to well first of all my sisters this is kind of a classic of my family so it's literally my mom is in hospice and she's like I know you're writing your book and I'm asking you to not write about your abortion and my sister whispers in my ear which one <laughs> so, so what, what, what's the nickname that your sister said for you Terminator 3 <laughs> Um, so I know, but then I love to fuck with these people, these, you know, anti-choice people. They're like, how many abortions have you had? I'm like, you know, I don't save receipts. I'm so (laughs) organized. I have no idea. Um, so, but I said to my mom, I said, you know, mom, this is something that we, I know that you worry about because of, you worry about my salvation. You worry about your own salvation. And I feel like if you believe in a just and forgiving and kind God that, this God will have watched our relationship and watched me on earth and know that I'm not a bad person. And I just, all the other stuff is a disagreement we have about what a person is. So I can't honor your wish, but I'll honor your wish to be a good person. You know, I'll try to be that. So it was, I think it was tough for her. I think she didn't know what to do. And I think, um, I think that she like talked to a lot of religious people about it and then would sometimes yell at me thinking I was my sister on the phone. She's got a put 
together. Well, and I'm like, uh, hi, it's me. Oh, hi, I'm no. not Anne or Mary. It's me. And you're talking about me to me. So, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I know. Oh, what did that feel like for you? You know, it's there's some things that you just have to have to understand that your parents aren't you and they're humans like everybody else and they're going to approve of some things you do and disapprove of some things you do but you pursuing your best self is is really what the best gift you can give your parents right yeah. and so that's all I could do was go on a path and pursue what I thought was my best self and at the end of the day, I think that she knew that too. I think she was secretly really glad that she found out I had an abortion afterwards so that she could mm. be the martyr and not have to... As opposed to having trying to talk you out of it and trying to talk you into having a and child. And knowing that like this dumb shit that I got pregnant by was a total like ha- hockey hair <laughs> moron. Yeah. Um, you know, like, oh my God, my life would have been changed forever i would be living like in some horrible suburb with some creep yeah and probably had more kids by him and never had pursued one single thing or dream yeah you'd be living in hopkins no i think i'd be living in coon rapids oh god or like something (laughs) whatever some of no offense to minnesota people but no nobody i'm sorry yeah i don't want to live in blaine it's not a thing so did you do you feel like you were at peace with her when she passed yeah yeah it was yeah because i had a relationship with her like, we had a good relationship. Like, you know, they came out here to visit me. We went, we, our family traveled together. My family's really close. And I, I think she probably always had some underlying feelings about it. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I can't control that. I can't, you know, I had underlining feelings about, you know, shit she said about uh, people of color and abortion and gay folks. I mean, I'll never forget. She was like, you know, here's the thing about gay people. Um... I know, here's, I, I'm morally opposed to it because the Bible says that gay, gayness is wrong and it's a mortal sin. But also, if we just allow gay men to just run around and, and have sex together all the time, nothing will ever get done. Can you imagine the lines at the post office? That's just said to me. Can you imagine the lines at the post office? And I was like, no. <laughs> but first of all, no. And second of all, I'm just now looking at you, this 85-year-old woman, picturing guys just blowing each other in the back of the post office while you just want your book of love stamps. All I want is the American flag stamps. Could you get your mouth off of his penis? I just want my stamps. So her brain was always this kind of hilarious way that she would say things and, you know, and that Minnesota backhanded. I love... Uh, the story that when they found the Nazi in Minnesota, there was like an old Nazi that turned up in Minnesota. I do not know this story. Yeah, the old Nazi turned up in Minnesota years ago. Yeah. And uh, the Nazi lived on my aunt's block. And my aunt called my mom and said, that Nazi lived down the street from us. And when his sister-in-law died, I sent over a hot dish. I never got the pan back. I should have known right then. <laughs> classic Minnesota like I didn't get the pan back so <laughs> clearly a Nazi because oh, so you know like you don't return the snowblower or the pan from the funeral oh, like there's never a gift sin. given in Minnesota that has not come without strings like, if you can find that person who is an unconditional giver you are lucky yeah, they're not shit. from Minnesota they're no, a transplant that's right that is true so a lot of her um, 
beliefs, a lot of the kind of um, rules that she had for a living were based on her faith. Do you believe in God? I don't know. You know, I'm, I always think about that a lot. I don't know if I do or not. Um, you know, and I don't know if I'm just like hedging my bets or if I'm like, do I think there's a God? Do I think like those, like the Bible's like a thing? Do I, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I struggle with it and I, it doesn't occur to me to think about it a lot, except for when I'm thinking about death. Then you're like, oh, that's the know, thing, right? That's the thing. And now I feel like I'm at the age that, you know, almost, it seems like every week somebody in my Facebook feed is talking about a dying parent yeah. or somebody else I know is getting diagnosed with cancer. Like I'm pushed, I'm, I'm turning 50 this year and it's, it's, it's starting to happen. Yes. And so you do think about it. Yeah. You know? I know. And I just kind of feel like what happens afterwards. That's the question. Yeah. What happens? You know? Yeah. I, and I don't know the answer and I don't know that I feel like I have comfort in any faith or anything. Mm-hmm. So you just try to do some work on the planet that leaves the planet better or leaves people's lives better or you know that's that's kind of what I I'm just gonna do and then if I did it all wrong I guess I'm gonna burn in a fiery pyre with my head in a vat of shit for the rest of my life see that's a thing I'm pretty sure isn't real (laughs) (laughs) that's the part you're clear on that you're not doing headstands in a vat of shit and then you come up just to look around and then you go back down Yeah. yeah yeah I don't yeah I mean, I mean, I don't know. I like the idea. I like the idea that maybe somehow we still get to like peek in on this world after death, or that that maybe dead people are still somehow in our in our lives. But the idea of being punished or rewarded for what you did during your time that seems strange to me. Well, that's a. I think that's just the Catholic. Yeah. See, I wasn't raised in any kind of religion, so I don't ground have that. into you. Uh, yeah. You know. So if you're brought up Catholic, you always have that like. Shh. Thing. Yeah, I'm learning. Like, I married a Catholic, and yeah. I, you know, or a lapsed Catholic, whatever you call yourselves. But yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he does still have a little bit of that guilt thing. Yeah, you're like, oh, what's gonna happen? Yeah, is my bad? <laughs> I think that leads me to my last question, which is, um, this, so I ask everybody the same two questions. The first one is, did you, what did you want to be when you were little? And the last question is always, how do you define success? How do you know you're there? What's that for you? Um, I don't think that there is a there. I think mm-hmm. that success is uh, making decisions that you enjoy and being open enough to start on a path and paying close enough attention to um, noticing every opportunity and not being afraid to explore it and take it if it wasn't something that you had thought maybe your path would be. And that's, that's Twitter for you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and so I just feel like, for me, I started out as stand-up. I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a stand-up. And then I just, um, as things became important to me, um, I wanted to be able to talk about those things and the space that I wanted to use humor to expose what I think is bullshit or hypocrisy uh, was ever-changing. But I guess so for me to be able to always shine a light on bullshit um, is much more important than um, the avenue or the space that I'm doing it, as long as I'm doing it in a way that is um, hitting people. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say about Lady Parts Justice? What do you want people to know about your current project? Um, I think, I mean, the coolest thing is I'm now melding, like, the one issue that is my that's most important to me, which is um, access to abortion, 
and birth control and so that people can be on a path of their own destiny because having a child or deciding to not have a child is the first decision you make in a long line of how your life is going to be defined Mm -hmm. and I want people to make sure that if that's not the choice for them or if it is a choice for them that they they get to do that with um, all the tools and with dignity and without stigma so to be able to shit on these anti-science crazy pants people which is what we do through video uh, and to be able to make videos that are like funny or die videos but are about like crazy laws crazy politicians our hinder app is really fun it's like tinder but it exposes like all these shitheads in in a dating app you can share it and then also we go on the road and we go visit clinics and we do a comedy show and then we um, find out what the clinic needs as far as just like help and support Mm -hmm. and it's very rewarding to meet the people that you're servicing and then to meet people in the community who are also helping the clinic and try to grow those communities so that a clinic always feels needed and wanted and and supported. Why do you think why do you think that it's getting so scary for reproductive rights? Like what is going on? Like why is it getting why are we going backwards? I think that I think we're going backwards because in the course of demanding your autonomy, you are also demanding power. And I think that's really a terrifying thought for people who have unearned power, who are in the driver's seat. Mm. It's very interesting how people, when we ask to have a seat at the table or to share power and space, especially in decisions that affect us directly, how people look at that as taking away all their power. You know, sharing mm. is not the same as taking from you. It's called sharing. And yeah. we all just want to have decisions. And there's some that people shouldn't make for you and me. And there's some that I shouldn't make for other people. But we need to talk about, like, all that stuff, and I think that anybody who's asking for power uh, and demanding equality is a is a terrifying, a terrifying uh, entity. Yeah, I saw a meme today that said something to the effect of equality is very uncomfortable for people who have always enjoyed privilege. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you just like I, I, like one of my Facebook friends was talking about um, just how white people are freaking out and how how dangerous it is that those of us who are saying, you know what, get used to it. It's, yeah. Shit's changing. Get yeah. over it. You're not going to be the head of the table anymore. He's like, we got to be very careful because white people are the ones who can actually cause damage and they're not going to stand up for it. They're the ones with the guns, like blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that is just not the right thing to say, right? right? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it's like they amass all the guns because they don't know how to have power any other way. <sighs> yeah. You know, when you watch people with the power asserting it so profoundly... Uh, dangerously, stupidly, harmfully. They're usually also equipped with a a, a gun Mm. uh, of some sort, an armament of some sort. Um, And it's because they, their fear of being found out Mm. is so profound. And that if they're found out, then they have nothing. Right? Yeah. And then you bring any kind of secular world into it. And then you tell somebody who has nothing that there's really no afterlife either. Oh my oh God. God! They don't want to hear from you. They do not want to hear from me. <laughs> yeah, done. Case closed. We're out of here. You, you Liz- atheist lady. Bye, bye, bitch, bye. Liz Winstead, where can people find you online? Oh my God! You can find me at Liz Winstead um, on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, Liz Winstead on Facebook, and then go to LadyPartsJustice.com and Lady Parts Justice League. Two different little entities with two different sorts of. Uh, 
messaging and go to those websites and find out more about us. And yeah, then, I think you should really yeah. go. If you should really go, click on LadyPartsJusticeLeague.com and look for the trap laws section yeah. and find out what's going on in your state because local elections are the ones that determine your reproductive freedom. That's exactly right. So and you've got to pay attention. Every state but Oregon has curbed laws after Roe v. Wade. Every single state but Oregon. So if you live in Oregon. Go, ducks. Mazel. You're killing it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> everywhere else, it is a shit show of epic proportions run by people who are nuts. Yeah. yeah. Liz, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, I love you. Thanks, Sarah. I love you, too. That's going to wrap things up for this edition of How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. Don't forget, you can support the show by telling your friends all about it. You should be subscribing in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Please share our interviews. Um, Tell people about it wide and far. And also make sure to leave a review and a rating in iTunes. That helps other people support the show. How They Did It is produced in partnership with Pregame Magazine, where you can read lots of interesting articles. That's available at pregamemagazine.com. Our music, which you are hearing right this second, is by Girls Like Bass. You can hear more from them at girlslikebass.com. If you'd like to follow me on the internet, you can do so on Twitter, at DarbyW, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Darby, or on Instagram, instagram.com slash DarbyW. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening.